This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is November 25th, 2021. It's Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and for others around the world, it's a break from U.S. colleagues. On today's program, we'll examine the Glasgow Climate Pact. That's the formal outcome from COP26, which is, of course, the two-week UN climate conference earlier this month. You, you may have heard something about it. The Glasgow Pact was written and agreed to by diplomats from around 200 countries. So there's a lot that's in the pact and a lot that's not there for people to both work on and argue about before COP27 happens next year in Egypt. Now, one of the COP26 attendees was MSCI's head of climate research and COP veteran, Oliver Marchand. I started my conversation with Oliver by diving right in. I asked him how he would describe the conference and, more importantly, his take on what came out of it. Well, if you're asking, did we get what the world needed? The answer is totally, absolutely, clearly no. We did not get what the world needed. The world needs a credible path towards 1.5 degrees. Limiting warming to that level is absolutely necessary, and we're very far away from that. But um, I think a lot of people don't necessarily assess um, the process by that goal because that's going to take a lot of time. But they, they actually look at the process and they ask themselves the question, what can a UN conference even deliver? And, you know, how much progress have we made since the last conference or at least since Paris? And I think we can say that there is a lot of progress that has been made, even though, you know, it's, it's not sufficient. Oliver is a scientist, but as we move beyond this first measured assessment, his enthusiasm for the process became much more apparent. So from previous years, I'd known that climate change conferences organized by the UN, the COP, Conference of Parties, as it's called in UN speak, were quite large undertakings, very large events that can be overwhelming. But I think I can safely say that, you know, even with that knowledge, getting into the middle of all of it was really overwhelming for the for the first days of the conference. Let's qualify some of this. According to Oliver, you might normally expect maybe around 20,000 people at this kind of conference over two weeks. Now that's pre-COVID. Keep in mind, COP26 had nearly 40,000 attendees. So, um, yeah, it's it, it can be quite overwhelming, but for a, let's say, a climate change geek or a climate change activist, very interested uh, people, you know, of course, this is super, super interesting and super exciting because you sort of know that, you know, every person that's there shares your passion for solving the climate crisis and this whole feeling around seeing so many people that want to help overcoming this crisis in the best possible way is, it creates a lot of energy, I think. I think we've really uh, come to the point where all nations sort of have understood that we need to um, start putting aside, uh, at least start putting aside national interests 
for the good of everyone. I think there's a lot of bad-mouthing uh, corporate influence, uh, maybe you know, oil-producing nations uh, influence, talking to people on the ground. I think that influence is, is kind of starting to wear down for the good of you know, creating a 1.5-degree path. Of course, agreeing on the destination is not the same as agreeing on the right way to get there. That energy that Oliver mentioned, the, the passion, it was expressed in many different ways. I had the chance to really talk to negotiation teams. For example, um, I talked to the head negotiator of the Cameroon team, and I, it was just uh, really striking to see the level of emotion uh, that any uh, discussion um, with him had. African countries really feel very betrayed by the developed worlds. They're only responsible for 4% of the emissions, but when you look at any kind of you know, development of heat graph, you see that they're taking, you know, the first impacts very heavily on climate change. So, you know, they're furious and uh, there's, it's just different to see that in a report or to talk to someone, you know, who's trying to fight uh, for his country. And it, that goes to um, obviously a large theme that was coming out as the conference was going on, as well as afterwards, this, this, divide, there's almost no other way to say it, between the richer countries who have done most of the polluting, gotten rich off of fossil fuels, and the poorer ones who, like you said, are suffering more than others. That is one of the major debates. And that is, I, in my view, one of the big failures of the Glasgow Climate Pact. We have to remember that um, since the year 2009, the developed uh, countries have been trying to gather 100 billion US dollars per year. And remember, this is a fraction of the money that is being poured into subsidies for fossil fuels worldwide. They've been trying to gather that to support the low carbon transition in the developing nations. We don't have that money together yet. It's sort of stuck at a level of 85 billion um, per year. And the second point is loss and damage. Loss and damage is a term that refers to an ask of the developing nations, especially you know, the very vulnerable coastal nations, that when a disaster hits and that disaster is related to climate change, they would like after the disaster to get some compensation for the damage and the loss that had been inflicted onto them by you know, the emitters, basically. And developing nations agree there needs to be a loss and damage mechanism, but there was basically no result except saying next year we're going to get this loss and damage thing going. And of course, uh, the developing nations are, are put under a really horrible dilemma. And the dilemma is, should, should they be a blocking point in these negotiations? Because they find... Those two points, for example, non-acceptable? Or should they be at least supportive of an agreement and then move the whole process forward? It's, it's really, uh, there's no wrong or right, I think. You can see by the interventions um, uh, at the very final plenary sessions that most countries have agreed we, we need a Glasgow Climate Pact. 
no matter all of the deficiencies um, that may be in there. That, as we've heard already, was a theme that Oliver came back to many times as we spoke. It's the notion of progress, not perfection, of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Choose, choose whatever cliche you prefer. But the more he spoke, the more it made sense. I mean, it's easy to be disappointed by the fact that this was the 26th UN Climate Conference, and we will need a 27th at least. But think about the fact that you've got nearly 200 countries, not to mention non-state actors, investors, and others, all determining that this is important. That we will come together and try and solve this problem year after year. It can change how you assess surprises. Something such as the last-minute change to the pact that happened in terms of addressing the issue of coal and fossil fuel subsidies. So the much-debated language here on, on coal and fossil fuels basically was this last-minute change proposed by India and China of changing a phase-out of coal and fossil fuel subsidies into phase-down. Some people argue that, uh, you know, that that was a really an awful move by the two countries because there was sort of agreement on that no new language would be introduced two days be before the last day of the conference. So introducing this new language really was sort of outside of the rules. But I think we have to understand this clause um, in the context of uh, UN negotiations. In the UN, sovereignty, basically meaning that each country can do whatever they like, is the, the, the overarching principle. Now, putting any language in a UN agreement that would determine which forms of energy are to be employed and which ones not was unthinkable um, before the Glasgow Climate Pact. So even putting that in there is really significant. But Oliver believes the pact contains a portion of even greater significance. There is now a yearly review cycle of the nationally determined contributions. So each country, they have to improve their ambition and resubmit their targets every year. And uh, that is significant because I think that was sort of a common understanding that there are always four not so important climate conferences, for example, the next one in Egypt. And then there's one really, really important one, like this one in Glasgow. That is a big deal. It means that countries will have to examine and state their efforts to reduce emissions and adapt to the impacts of climate change not just every five years. They'll have to do so every year. Also, it's not just restating goals. There are, there are many, many, many specifics in the, in the Glasgow um, Climate Pact uh, around reporting and transparency. And that's really great because, I mean, we at MSCI, we, <laughs> we know very well from analyzing, you know, all of the world's NDCs in, in great detail, we know how difficult it is to make sense of all of these unstructured documents. Um, and I think it's great that we're moving towards a more systematic and more a standardized reporting and um, analysis framework. COP26 also brought certain topics and certain new participants onto the main stage. 
As we heard from Linda Ellingly on our last episode, discussions in Glasgow included the effects of methane and the importance of biodiversity, both of which may sound like new areas of climate change, especially for those who are newer to the conversation. So I asked Oliver why methane emissions are as important as carbon. So you have to understand that methane is one of the, you know, seven very important greenhouse gases. It's um, depending on what time frame you take around 20 to 80 percent more potent than CO2. So in that sense, it's, it's really important. The big difference is that methane is not a, a stable gas like CO2. So methane over a period of, um, you know, let's say uh, around 30 years, uh, it, it dissolves, it, it partially dissolves to uh, CO2. And um, well, what's important is that um, the short-term warming is largely influenced by, uh, by methane. So now it's really great that we have, I think on an international level, we, have, uh, we are considering this, this topic. It's, uh, the, the agreement is, is really striking. Uh, it's over 100 countries that have signed the methane pledge. And the methane pledge basically says that those countries that have uh, committed um, to the pledge want to reduce the methane emissions by 30% um, until the year 2030. The potential benefit of that is around 0.2, 0.3 degrees of warming by the year 2040. So it has a really strong short-term effect and it may be a, you know, a key element in what is called keeping 1.5 alive. And that conversation on, on methane leads very nicely, I think, into a, another area that was um, a newer uh, discussion, I think, for a lot of people. And, and that is around biodiversity and the, and the importance of biodiversity when it comes to climate change. Can you, can you walk us through some of what was discussed there and why, or more importantly, what is the relationship there to climate change and, and why is that a focus? So climate change is one of the reasons for why we're in the uh, so-called um, uh, sixth mass extinction period. So we observe, you know, record-breaking um, species lost all around the planet. And, you know, the, the way that uh, plays out is, for example, by cutting down tropical forests, which are very well known to have huge biodiversity, and exchanging it with agricultural farmland, which has, you know, very low uh, biodiversity. It's um, related to uh, biodiversity in the oceans, for example, where rising temperatures yield to coral bleaching, which, you know, in effect uh, leads to biodiversity loss. And the problem with biodiversity is that it is just in itself such a complex topic. First of all, it's hard to measure. It's um, very uh, diverse in, in its nature. And so uh, then the question is, you know, where is biodiversity loss happening? But then there's also the question, what is the cause? What is the trigger for this biodiversity loss? So it, in itself, it's such a complicated topic. And I think it's good that people are focusing on uh, biodiversity and trying to make it make it more measurable. And the new players on the stage, of course, are finance and private industry in general, both of which are always hungry for the kind of measurements Oliver just mentioned. I think all around the world, you know, when you look at, at corporates, they're actually asking for you know, more clarity on the low carbon transition. They're oftentimes asking for an official carbon price. 
they're actually oftentimes asking for clear regulation. They're asking for, you know, subsidies for renewable energies. They're asking for decarbonization pathways um, and clear plans so that they can, you know, they can adapt to that and they can do better planning and basically, uh, you know, save the economy a lot of money by, um, you know, going strategically in, in the right direction. As for the finance or investment industry, well, they, we, paid very close attention to COP this year, and COP paid very close attention to the investment industry. There was even a finance day, which, to Oliver, had some personal significance. I started Carbon Delta in 2015, you know, uh, a startup company here from Zurich, Switzerland, where the main idea was to create climate value at risk and implied temperature rise as two quantitative metrics um, built from, you know, big data. And the interesting thing is that I remember that when we were admitted to our first startup program, the judges, you know, told us, um, look, Oliver, we sense that you have a lot of energy and that, that you know what you're doing. But to be honest, we don't at all understand what you're trying to do. Now, six years later, we're in a situation where climate value at risk and implied temperature rise are very well known in the industry. The concept has um, really become mainstream as ways to measure climate risk and climate impact. And you would find those terms referenced multiple times throughout, uh, you know, the World Climate Summit and the GFENS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero, had been launched. And, and part of GFENS is the promotion of these kinds of metrics to basically make the uh, TCFD requirements, the um, reporting requirements for uh, the financial industry and corporates, you know, more concrete. It's, it's really mind-blowing. You know, when it comes to GFENS, you know, we were kind of joking um, while we were in Glasgow saying that, uh, you know, maybe there may even be some members of the GFENS Alliance who maybe haven't fully understood that for being a member, you have to agree to a pretty aggressive net zero strategy that includes your whole entire value chain. So basically these members of GFENS have basically, uh, you know, agreed to putting a net zero target to all of their products which you know, for banks would mean that every loan would be net zero, for asset managers would mean that every fund that they offer is net zero, for asset owners mean that every dollar that they invest, they would invest in a you know, net zero kind of way. For insurers, it would mean that every insurance that they uh, you know, sell is a, is a net zero, can be uh, qualified as a net zero uh, insurance. So I, I think it's, it's quite far reaching. As I mentioned at the top of the show, opinions differ about the Glasgow Climate Pact. And while there are others who might agree with Oliver's guarded optimism, they don't think action is happening quickly enough. One angle some of these folks have chosen is to take to the courts. I think overall there are probably around 3,000 lawsuits uh, related to climate change. Uh, many of them are local law questions, um, you know, that, that we don't have to talk about here. But there are around probably 20 to 30, you know, very high level citizens suing their government for not doing enough about climate change. 
we have one very interesting case in the Netherlands where the highest court of the Netherlands did uh, uh, basically agree with the case that, you know, the Dutch government isn't doing enough about climate change. There's a very interesting case in Germany now, which where in Germany, um, you know, the activists were able to learn uh, from the previous cases. So the cases are being managed more professionally. And basically they um, have a set of 20 people. It's it's almost like, a, you know, class action lawsuit where 20 people from very different backgrounds come together. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's a farmer, there's someone living on an island, there's like an, uh, you know, a, an, an elderly person. Um, and they, they all have their, um, you know, different uh, ways how climate change is, is impacting their lives. Um, and it'll be really, really hard for the court to say that none of them are, you know, clearly affected by climate change. And that brings us to a strand of, of research um, that has advanced. It's, it's called attribution science, where, you know, we're now able to run thousands and millions of uh, climate scenarios with and without climate change, and we can totally estimate the probabilities, the probability difference of any kind of event with and without climate change, and can sort of attribute the impact that climate change has. And I think that makes a huge difference because it's sort of like a scientific stamp on the logical relationship between somebody's life and climate change. Which brings us to the other push, the push of young people. We all know Greta, of course, but much like the frustrated voices from countries that contributed the least to the problem but are feeling the larger impact, younger people, much in the same boat, have been calling for faster change. There were nearly 100,000 people at the demonstration in Glasgow during the conference, and while security and COVID concerns kept them a good distance from the conference grounds, the reality and the power of their message was not lost to those inside. There's almost no one at the conference that didn't reference the young generation, and I think they have ample reason to refer to them um, because climate change not only is a geographical unfairness, it's also, you know, an intergenerational unfairness. You know, we're basically putting the burden of solving the climate crisis to, uh, you know, future generations. The most uh, memorable moment was when Franz Timmermans, the main EU negotiator, in the final plenary session, wanted to speak very early on. And you could sense both. You could sense the general tension that he had around maybe some countries not agreeing and just reminding everybody, look, um, their national interests, and we all get that, and we all have that, but, you know, please don't put your national interests before the global interests. And the second thing was he really made it very personal. He picked up his mobile phone, and he held it up, and he said, this is a picture of my grandson that I received from my son this morning. And I keep looking at it, and in the year 2050, he's going to be 30 years old, and I might not live to 2050, but he's going to have to deal with the situation. And he, the, just the way he said it, you know, and how, you know, the way he uh, expressed that, it, you know, this was really personal. I think that's the best reflection for, you know, just, just communicating how very, very important it is to most people that are trying to solve the climate crisis um, in those kinds of negotiations that 
that it's about future generations. Rule number zero for me with climate change is that we have no other choice but to do the best we can to improve the situation as best as we can. You know, I think uh, we can all safely say that, you know, we really, we did try our best. We went to COP, we tried to um, contribute um, in the best way. And, and I think we need to move this uh, UN process forward. It's the only thing we have. And so we need to uh, improve it in the best way that we can. And yeah, continue the dialogue and continue the process and accelerate the process, you know. That's the the best thing we can do. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Oliver and to all of you for listening. Next up on Perspectives, we get specific about how some of the issues raised at COP matter not only to everyone that lives on the planet, but more to the point to investors and the companies in which they invest. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.